Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. He's known as a beat poet, a man who hung out with the likes of Jack Kerouac and Allen Ginsberg. But he is also much more than that. He's a naturalist, he's an essayist, he's one of the most provocative thinkers, a songwriter, an award-winning playwriter. Will you please welcome Michael McClure to West Coast Live. He has a new volume of poetry out called Simple Eyes and Other Poems, as well as a book called Lighting the Corners on Art, Nature, and the Visionary. Each one of these uh, books has an inscription in it, Michael, that says, uh, this is from out of the, uh, the black plasma and the imagination. Yeah, it says, um, it says, once this was all black plasma and imagination. And that was, uh, I, I had a, a young person come to me and say, we want a, uh, it's the uh, City of Poets celebration. We want a short poem to go on a billboard above Union Square in San Francisco. Do you have one? I need it right now. I said, oh yeah, sure. Um, I wrote out, once this was all black plasma and imagination, and the next thing I knew it was on uh, uh, one of the four billboards above Union Square with Evian water and Marlboro cigarettes and I forget what else. And it was beautifully done. It was uh, designed by students at California College of Arts and Crafts. And it stayed up for, uh, it stayed up for several months. It was supposed to go up for 30 days during the uh, uh, the celebration of the City of Poets in San Francisco, but the, apparently the billboard is so expensive that they couldn't sell it again, or maybe the poem <laughs> put a haint on it or something. I'm not sure what happened. So I was up there for many months, and I understand any time they can't sell the billboard again that it will say once this was all black plasma and imagination because it's painted on the background. So I'm waiting for so, so it's up there now to go away. It's the metaphorical <laughs> equivalent of this space available. Yeah, I guess so. Actually, it's you know, it's like the, it's a metaphysical poem. You know, like once this was, you know, the, either this was like the 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 Big Bang theory, as someone suggested, uh, as many people believe, or it was a like Hawaiian Buddhism, and it all came together in an entirely different way, and it's nothingness and imagination anyway. So it's a it's a religious poem. You I like to write it in books, when, you know, like for Sedge Thompson. Once this was all. Right. Black plasma and imagination. The space available. <laughs> you know, W.H. Auden. Wait till you find out Evian Water's got something in there. Or Marlboro. <laughs> Keep no, your eye on it. Ne- neither of which we use, I have to say. Okay. Yeah, I noticed we're using Crystal Geyser. Yeah. The, uh, it, it's ours of choice, of course. The W.H. Uh, Auden once told a story uh, about telling a customs inspector when he was coming back into England, when he was asked what his profession was, he said, poet. And the customs inspector wrote down, unemployed. <laughs> but, you s- <laughs> but you seem to be a poet who's been managing to keep the bread coming in throughout all the years. Uh, yeah, I, I, you know, like a long, long time ago, one of the beat poets was asked by a young person uh, what to do to be a poet, and he said, learn a trade. <laughs> this was back in the 50s. He said, learn to be a bricklayer or a merchant seaman or something so that you can, uh, you know, you can support yourself. Uh, one, of the, one of the things that I do now is I perform with Ray Manzarek, the keyboardist of the doors. And uh, we, we go around to, well, we just played the, uh, uh, the, 
Art Festival of Central Pennsylvania to many people outdoors in a band shell. I recite my poetry. Ray plays not organ with me, but piano with me. And he plays the piano at the same time I recite my poems. And like many thousands of people out there got to hear it, and they understood it. It's a very beautiful experience, because much of what we do is environmental, and much of what we do is political in the Noam Chomskyan sense, political. I was struck to realize uh, how many of the beat poets, a time of the 50s of San Francisco that we associate with black turtleneck t-shirts, coffee, cigarettes, uh, wine, uh, actually have become, or were at the time, naturalists, and you, uh, Gary Snyder. Yeah, the first, uh, the very first beat poetry reading took place here in San Francisco in October 1955. Did you know it was a beat poetry reading at the time? Yeah, it's hard to say. That's the first time I saw Jack Kerouac and the first time Allen Ginsberg read Howells, so I knew something was up. <laughs> uh, we, knew, we knew we'd done something, uh, oddly enough. I mean, in a sense, we realized it was all history because that was the middle of a very ugly cold, the, uh, maybe the ugliest part of the Cold War, and maybe one of the ugliest moments in American history was in, the, was in the 1955s when young people were looked at as cannon fodder and had to have crew cuts and wear gray flannel suits and drive Buicks with little torpedo rings going uh, on the front of them. Remember all that? Yeah, some people out there nodding their heads. <laughs> and, you know, you got looked at like, uh, well, when are you going in the army, Sonny? You know, we need somebody out there. And, uh, and uh, we knew that we were uh, saying what many people uh, needed someone to say so that they could say, yeah. And that's, that's what that first beat poetry reading was. But to go back to your question, or, or your suggestion there, yeah, Gary Snyder read uh, poems about, uh, uh, very intense poems about nature and about uh, Native Americans, uh, the Berry Feast poems that he, he read that time, poem about American Indian myths, Philip Whalen, who's now a Zen abbot in San Francisco, uh, read Zen poems that were Zen poems, but also nature poems about walking through nature, being on fire walks in the mountains. And I think I probably read what was the first uh, poem uh, against the, the murder of whales. That was back in 1955. And so uh, we, we began as the uh, literary wing of the environmental movement. And that's not appreciated because uh, first uh, Life magazine, which was the TV of those days, presented us as being some kind of uh, goofy outlaws, which no doubt we were, but uh, you know, kind of suggested that we ought to be hung by the nearest, by, uh, by our neck at the nearest lamppost, if that was possible. And then that didn't work because a lot of people were really interested in what we were saying. We were speaking for other people. We were going around. We were reading our poems out loud. We were we were giving the viewpoint that had been that had been totally lost to American culture at that point, and. Uh, the next, thing, the next thing was to mystify the entire beat movement by presenting beats as being people who wore uh, shoes made out of old rubber tires and wore berets and had funny little beards with pasta dried in them, you know, and they <laughs> sat in smoky bars uh, drinking warm wine and s saying sad things to one another. Whereas actually we were all very busy. We were political. Uh, we, were, we were interested in, in the environment. We're, most of us went to the first UN uh, meeting, international meeting on the environment in 1972. We were strongly committed to that long before. And I mean, those were our major interests. Skipping ahead, you uh, met 
Jim Morrison at the Doors in a bar in, in New York. Yeah. Somebody sent you there. Could you describe what the, each of you was wearing at the time? Yes, uh, each of us was wearing black leather pants. Each of us had our hair down to our shoulders. Um, and uh, both of us took one look at one another and decided we didn't like the other. And the fellow who introduced us was a, a mutual friend who was actually then became, later became my agent, was my agent, became Jim's agent for his poetry because I persuaded Jim to publish his poetry. And uh, our agent at the time sort of shuddered that two, two men could meet each other and have such instant dislike until uh, one of us said, let's have a drink. <laughs> and both of us were very heavy drinkers at the time and within five minutes we were talking about poetry and, and uh, became uh, very close friends. Yeah. Is that how then also the association with Ray Manzarek um, began? Yeah, then, then Jim took me to uh, uh, the third recording session of The Doors, which was a very interesting experience. I was already, The Doors had actually kind of returned me to rock and roll. I'd given up on rock and roll uh, because I thought it had, been, it had become uh, com commodified, I think we say today. But anyway, I th I, in those days I said, it's been co-opted by beer and tennis shoes, you know. And uh, so I'd kind of given up on rock and roll. Then I heard the doors. I thought, these people are, are great. I mean, this is like the modern jazz quartet of, of rock and roll, and they've got something to say. So when, and Jim was very interested in my play, The Beard, so we hit it off very strongly, became deep friends. And uh, we were writing a film script together, and he took me to the third recording session of The Doors. Then I met Ray. And then Ray and I met again about six or seven years ago in a, a place called McCabe's in Santa Monica, because I was down there reading my poetry, and he went into a backup, a mutual friend of ours, and he was playing piano with Michael C. Ford, and then Ray heard my new poems, I heard what he was doing in that new sound he does, which is something like, very, he's an incredible composer. It's something like Balinese music, and it's something like Scriabin, and it's something like uh, rock and roll, it's a lot like, something a lot like The Doors. Uh, it's got blues in it, and uh, we just decided to work together. And within six weeks, uh, some college had asked us to come and give a performance, and we started doing it. And we do it a couple of times a month. And we have a CD out now, and uh, we should be working on our second CD, which we'll, I guess we'll start working on it in October. So one of the aspects of, of, of being a successful poet is a way of getting yourself out in the world, whether it's you know, producing CDs or marketing yourself in some way. Yeah, I guess so. I didn't think there was a, such a thing as a successful poet. <laughs> That's sort of an oxymoronism <laughs> or something. A successful poet, yeah. But, uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I guess I'm a big success. I never expected anything. I mean, I really believed that uh, we'd all have to learn a trade, you know, to, uh, to support ourselves. So well, you're a performer. Being here makes me a success, yeah. right. Could I, could I hear a couple of your poems? I'd love to, yeah. yeah. This, is, this is from your new collection called Simple Eyes. So you're getting out your glasses then? Yeah. When did you get to start wearing glasses? Oh, I've been wearing about 10 years. So this, this is the first poem in my book, Simple Eyes, and it's called Spirits Desperado. And it, what, what I think now is that any, like in the 50s, we were looked on as desperados. In the 60s, we were looked on as kind of desperados. Now, I think in the 90s, in the 80s, in the 90s, anybody with any human feeling is a, is a kind of a desperado. Anybody with, an, with a, something, with, with a, building a soul as part of themselves is, is, is that. 
So here's Spirits Desperado. Spirits Desperado, I, I cheer in bravo the sign of negation and of hunger for soul. As a boy, I saw the mole and the eagle soaring and burrowing together and imagined that love was created of hair and of feather that rubbed on the edge of the vast ledge of sight, sound, taste, touch, and of the smell of satin and silk and of the guts of the butchered creature that writhes and grows a brain. I was sure that it was not hell that I was living, but I was reflecting the stain of that huge being called the stars. I knew it was not even heaven, but it is all divine. To be alive is to feast on desperation. Michael McClure. Yeah, it's fun. It's uh, it's fun doing that because this is a that's a first time. I, I've hardly begun to read these poems to an audience. Can I read another? Sure. I mean, you you conduct as you go. Your your hand moves in this graceful rhythmic pattern. You know, like you're pointing to the oboe section and then over to the <laughs> violins. Yeah. Well, it's all going on in my head. Maybe I can bring some of it to somebody else's consciousness. Uh, this I for the first time in this book, Simple Eyes, and other poems I published. Uh, uh, poems that I've written while I was traveling. I always write poems when I'm traveling, but I've never wanted to publish them before. They, they weren't of the same quality as my other work. And then something happened in Kenya a couple of years ago. So. What was it about traveling that, that interfered with your poetry in your view? Well, it didn't interfere at all. I, wrote, I write voluminously when I travel, but it just went, and then I get back to the United States, and it's, it doesn't look, like it, doesn't look as great as it looked in Paris or somewhere, Iceland or somewhere. It looks so great there. Back in San Francisco, I say, well, it's kind of thin. I don't think I can publish it. But this time, after getting back from Africa, I read these. I knew these, were, I knew these did it when I was traveling, too. Here's one called the Cheetah. This is, we rented a car, and we were driving around in the game planes, and we, and we found a cheetah with her cubs. See the face of a beautiful and highly intelligent child in the profile of the cheetah. She is beyond all good and evil and more like us than we can ever imagine. The black stripes at the tip of her tail twitch and she closes her eyes as my mother used to do with pleasure. Her three large kittens nod and grin in the sun. What is human is so much more obvious in beings with tails. <laughs> do, you, do you keep animals around your house? Uh, we, we have a, a dog who's... Uh, 13 years old, which for a big dog is 97 years old uh, in doggy years, and she's almost blind, almost, she's 95% blind and probably 95% deaf. She has a major tumor which is in remission, and she's just enjoying life enormously. She likes to eat, she likes to go for walks, and uh, it, it's a pleasure to, you know, like to see this being at this 
stage of maturity, shall we say, <laughs> still enjoying life so much. The, uh, you have another poem? Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to read another one of these Kenya poems because uh, when, when you stop at the side of the road in Kenya, you're driving along, you see hyenas laying in mud pools there. They're like, you know how pigs like to soak in mud because they have delicate skin, you know? Well, the hyenas apparently must be similar in that sense because alongside of the road there'll be these pools of gray mud and they'll just be laying in the pools looking up balefully at the car as the car goes by. So you stop and you look at them and you're only, you know, like you're inside the window and they're out there. So there's maybe only five or six feet from you. This is called Old Eyes. See the hyena's face as she stands up from the pool of dripping gray mud. Her face, my face, and the face of the old Maasai woman from whom we buy the beaded earrings are all the same. We are the game of petroleum cities and the ancient water holes. It is one alertness and wisdom in all eyes. The old woman's dark brown irises are faded at the edges to circles of cloudy blue just as my eyes have gained smoky rims through the swirling of light shows at the Fillmore and in the howlings of airplanes and autos while she laughed and listened to the lion roaring at her cows from the thorn scrub. <laughs> Beautiful. Michael McClure, the collection Simple Eyes. So in thinking about it, so much of poetry of, of the 19th century was uh, both metaphysical and, and, and all about nature. And in some ways, in the past couple of decades, you and other poets of the Beat Generation have made poetry both about nature and about politics. I mean, the major political issues of our time are cultural, and you've, you speak to that in many ways, on a very intimate, personal level. Yeah, we came, we, we came to the front at a time when there was, a, I mean, there, there, was true, there was true censorship. I mean, people talk about censorship now, but censorship now is of an entirely different kind. Chom Noam Chomsky can explain very well to us. But censorship then was, was flagrant and obvious. I mean, uh, when Ginsburg's howl was busted uh, by the long poem Allen Ginsberg wrote, was busted by the police after it was published by Lawrence Ferlinghetti. I mean, we, that, 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 that was time for it to stop. I mean, that was time for us to really get out there. And if we had any question before about where, where we stood with our toe on the line uh, regarding the state of the culture, uh, we came right out. There were uh, recent reports on uh, how the FBI watched Leonard Bernstein for years, kept files on him. Did you ever look to see whether the FBI had a file on you or any of your, uh, your colleagues? Yeah, I did. It's the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. I mean, uh, uh, Ed DeGrazia got my, my, what do they call it? The, the file the FBI keeps on you? There's, there's some name for it. And he got it for dossier. him. What, the uh, dossier. Ed DeGrazia got it for me. He's a heavyweight New York political lawyer. And I mean, it was the most laughable thing I've ever said in my life. I mean, I have said some really horrible things that probably could have gotten me thrown in jail. And instead, the stuff that they're, they're saying on this is like the most, the, the people who, who were listening and writing the dossiers were morons. I mean, it's just, the stuff is stupid. 
And, uh, and uh, Ed said, geez, this, this stuff is so lame, there must be more. And I said, yeah, I don't even want to know about it if there is. So <laughs> we let it go at that. Would you ever think of publishing that? With a, with a little textual commentary that goes along on the side? <laughs> I don't even think it's interesting. <laughs> uh, but your textual commentary, you know. It would be very interesting, yeah. yeah. <laughs> sort of a, a little counterpoint. Yeah. Uh, but I've looked at several people's dossiers. I, I have not seen one that, I mean, really did justice to the people who were, who were being written. <laughs> I mean, I've heard what those people said, and I read the dossiers. I mean, if you wanted to say something negative or inflammatory, they didn't get the right material. Michael McClure, Simple Eyes, the name of the poetry, Lighting the Corners on Art, Nature, and the Visionary. Thanks very much for coming to West Coast Live. Hey, it's a great pleasure. Michael McClure. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.